Al Jazeera podcast. Today on The Take, a special roundtable episode as we continue our third week of coverage on Israel and Palestine. You can also catch this discussion via video on YouTube. The link is in the show description. This podcast has been lightly edited for audio. Here's the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Welcome to you all, and thank you so much for being here with me for this roundtable episode of The Take, recording via video on YouTube and audio for our podcast listeners. So our topic for today, they came, they protested, they got arrested. Thousands of people filled the domed hall of the U.S. Capitol last week, stationed themselves on the lobby floor of the Congressional Building, and blocked the gates of the White House to call for an immediate ceasefire and an end to the Israeli bombardment of Gaza. These protests came 10 days after the unprecedented incursion and attack in Israel by Hamas and the Israeli military strikes and bombing of the Gaza Strip. As we record this conversation, more than 6,000 people have been killed since October 7th. So today, we want to discuss how activists are challenging mainstream narratives surrounding Palestine and Israel, both online and in the streets, and what solidarity looks like for them. And these are my guests. I'm going to have us go around our room and they will introduce themselves in a sentence. Um, Iman, let's start with you. Tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, my name is Iman Abed, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. I'm the director of advocacy at the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights, and I am calling you from Washington, D.C. today. My name is Beth Miller, uh, she, her pronouns, and I'm the political director with Jewish Voice for Peace, um, and I'm calling to talk with you all from Brooklyn, New York. Hello, everyone. My name is Jamie Swift. I use she, her pronouns. I am the founder and executive director of Black More Radicals, and we are a Black feminist advocacy organization dedicated to uplifting and centering Black feminist activism around the world. So I think it would be safe to say that it has been an eventful and emotional three weeks. So I want to do a rapid fire round for this first question in this virtual space of ours. And I want to hear just one sentence from each of you on how you are feeling and how you've been coping with all of it. Iman? So I myself am Palestinian and I have family who lives in the West Bank who has currently now um, lived under the escalation that has been rising now for the last few years. Um, as well as just what has been going on in the last couple of weeks. Um, so it's safe to say I am both frustrated and feeling slightly paralyzed with the amount of information. I don't think that we can actually, as human beings, even fathom the atrocity as it's happening. Um, I think as days go by, we are able to maybe start comprehending to what level the dangers that the people of Gaza and the West Bank are undergoing. But it it's still difficult. It's still extremely difficult to truly understand the devastating consequences of just the last two weeks. So in this moment, I come at you with deep frustration in what's been happening since um, we just experienced one of the deadliest nights last night in Gaza since October 7th. Um, and I'm feeling 
yet I'm feeling hopeful um, by sitting on this platform with so many wonderful, amazing, radical women who are trying to lead the efforts um, in showcasing what is actually happening here. So holding both of those emotions deep in my heart at the moment. Wow. Mm. Beth, what about you? How are you feeling? Sending a lot of love to Iman right now. Um, uh, yeah, I think um, <clears throat> I'm feeling a lot of uh, grief, like an overwhelming onslaught of grief that is funneling itself into rage and frustration with how our own government is is um, postured around this specifically. Um, you know, I'm I'm coming from someone who works at an organization where we have members who lost Israeli beloveds on October 7th and now are losing Palestinian beloveds in Gaza as the Israeli military carries out what can only be described as an imminent genocide of Palestinians in Gaza. And so I'm, I think that where I'm, the feelings I'm having right now are a combination of uh, grief, rage, and overwhelming urgency um, uh, and kind of the desperation and the need to, um, to put an end to this um, horrific assault that we're seeing take place right now on the Palestinians living in Gaza and in the West Bank. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Jamie, what about you? I have not been able to sleep, um, function, or think about anything else other than what is going on in Gaza um, and in, Pal- in Palestine. Um, it is atmospheric. Um, it is universal. And, and I can't even fathom you know, what Iman is going through and what so many other people are going through with loved ones on the ground. All I can do is be encouraged that there's so many people who are in solidarity from all different backgrounds and all different races and all different ethnicities coming together to just uplift what is happening, which is, I agree with Beth, an imminent genocide and has been a continual perpetual genocide, right? An expulsion and violation of Palestinian people. So I feel sadness, but I'm also elated by the solidarity, but we still have so much more work to do. There is a heaviness to all of those words and to all of what you're feeling. And I think everyone who's listening and watching can relate. I know that I can. Um, But I'm also intrigued that almost all of you said there was a tinge of hopefulness. So we're going to get to that hope. And let's start with what we saw on October 18th, Beth. I got chills watching these videos and these pictures and hearing protesters chant, not in my name, and ceasefire now. Several hundred Jewish Americans were arrested for doing that, for sitting in the rotunda of the Capitol building. Your organization, Jewish Voice for Peace, organized the rally where this happened. And those arrests followed a similar protest two days earlier when 50 activists were detained for blocking the gates of the White House. And that was organized by JVP and If Not Now. I know that you were in D.C. for that second rally, and you were taking meetings with offices as you push for a ceasefire. So there's the activism, and then there's the policy. Tell me about what that day was like and what you're pushing for. I think what we saw start to emerge over the last week, including Wednesday, is this eruption from the population across the U.S., of basically screaming to our lawmakers that this has to stop. Everyone caught up last week with what is happening, with the fact that the Biden administration is beating the drums of war 
And the Israeli military is carrying out full-blown war crimes against Palestinians in Gaza. And we all realize that we need to make this a no-business-as-usual moment until we can get a ceasefire to save lives, to prevent the further loss of life. That this is so dire that basically we have to, we have to get arrested. We have to put our bodies on the line. We have to make it clear that our lawmakers cannot just continue with their day-by-day business in this way. And so, you know, like you said, on Monday, there were uh, thousands who showed up at the White House to block the entrances, demanding a ceasefire to stop this genocide. And then on Wednesday, um, there was a rally of 5,000 people, Jews and allies, on the National Mall in front of the Capitol demanding a ceasefire. We were joined by um, Congresswoman Cori Bush and Rashida Tlaib, who'd been leading a resolution demanding a ceasefire now. Um, And then, like you said, hundreds of Jewish activists and allies went to the Capitol, the Cannon House Rotunda, and sat down wearing shirts that said, not in our name, uh, ceasefire now, Jews say ceasefire now. And they were led in the center by 25 rabbis who led them in prayer, in um, reading testimonies from Palestinians from Gaza, and in chants demanding a ceasefire now, demanding that uh, this genocide not happen in the name of somehow Jewish safety, right? The message we felt we had to break through and get across is that what the Israeli government is doing right now is they are saying, we have to do this to keep Israelis safe and to keep Jews everywhere safe. And that is false. And it is it is an incredibly horrifying, dangerous thing that they are saying, this lie they are saying. And so what we were trying to make clear is that this genocide that is happening, these attacks on Palestinians in Gaza, leveling entire apartment buildings, flattening neighborhoods, bombing mosques, bombing schools, this does not make Jewish people safer. All human life is precious. And as Jews, we were, many of us at least, were raised deeply understanding what genocide looks like and what it means. I was raised being told over and over, never again, never again. And that has to mean never again for anybody. And it cannot be that the Israeli government is now carrying out a genocide against Palestinians, claiming it's in the name of Jewish safety. We felt we had to break into that and disrupt that. And we were seeing it so much from our members of Congress that that is why we chose the Cannon House Rotunda. Um, And I'll say that at the time, I was also taking meetings with folks on the Hill, with offices with meeting with other folks here and there. Um, And it was incredibly powerful to walk down the halls of that house office building and hear those chants, hear that singing, hear that prayer happening um, and see that in offices, MSNBC was carrying it. Fox was carrying it. We knew that staffers were seeing it. Members of Congress were seeing it. Um, And I think the most important thing to get across though, is that this is not that, that action that's not the be-all, end-all. It's not like, okay, we did it, great. That's the starting point. And we are not the only ones taking action. Friday, there was another rally of thousands and thousands of people led by Black and Brown organizations and clergy. Um, and there have been protests of hundreds of thousands of people filling the streets of this country and the world demanding a ceasefire. And so this is just the, this is the kickoff point. This is where we keep going and we keep pushing now. Hmm. Iman, I see you nodding your head. You were there 
as well. How did you feel seeing that moment of solidarity? And if this is not the end all be all, then what do you want to see happen next? Yeah, I mean, I so I too was in meetings um, throughout the course of the afternoon while the demonstration was happening. Um, and I was extremely eager to step by and see the demonstration. Um, but I think in a few of the meetings that we were having with staffers on the Hill, um, my colleague and I from the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights were feeling extremely just demoralized. I mean, these conversations are not easy. These conversations, you walk away and you're like demanding what what should be such an easy thing to agree with. We're demanding a ceasefire here. It is the moral thing to do. And for folks to look back at you and say, okay, we may consider it, right, as an option. is like, you may consider what? You may, cons- you may take another hour, you may take another two, considering just how to provide your unconditional aid to Israel while folks, you know, are, are crying, crying right now and begging the United States and, and what other Western countries to side with them in supporting humanity. We went from asking to free Palestine to asking now to save Palestine. And it's extremely concerning. And as Palestinians, we don't, we never wanted that to be the demand. We, right, like many of us long before these last two weeks, were asking for this unconditional aid and military funding to stop being spent on Israel, especially as a country that is depleted in resources that the communities here across this country are in need of, you know, why are we constantly spending $3.8 billion and to Israel every single year? And, and now $3.8 billion is nothing in comparison to the potential $14 billion that we're considering here. And so in that specific moment, as we were walking across, you know, Capitol Hill, um, especially as we started leaning in towards the demonstration, I was extremely grateful for, you know, having now just left a conversation that left me feeling so depleted. But to see allyship amongst our Jewish brothers and sisters who like took hours upon their day, many who I think even took time off of work to like be able to participate and contribute in this way for us Palestinians as well. Like, we don't take that for granted. That solidarity is enormous. It's enormous right now. And we're seeing it, ha- like, as Beth mentioned, like, people are showing up in the hundreds of thousands, of thousands across the world. Mobilizations are happening every single day. People are not stopping. And we really can't stop anyways. We know that we can't stop until at least a ceasefire happens. But even then, we have to worry about the rest of Palestine. Like, Gaza is Palestine. But then there's the West Bank and there's all these other things that are popping up across the region that I think, again, for many of us, especially those of us who are either Jewish or Palestinian, have been extremely aware of, and even our Black brothers and sisters have been aware of for super a super long time. Um, but like this specific moment requires all the all these actions. It requires all these efforts. And um, I, I, I just thought it was a beautiful sight and just extremely grateful for that solidarity in that moment. Hmm. It also seems like it's kind of an all-hands-on-deck moment. So, Jamie, for you... Uh, what does solidarity mean for you? And and what does that work look like when it comes to the work that you do with Black women radicals? Definitely. I, I believe solidarity in this case is the unabashed support, right, of Palestinian people and their self-determination for how they determine their freedom, right? And I think that for me with Black women radicals, What I have known and seen and studied as a student of Black feminist politics is that there have been 
uh, there's a long history of not only Black and Palestinian solidarity, but more specifically Black feminists who have been in solidarity with Palestine. I can go down the gamut of people, Toni Morrison, Barbara Ransby, Angela Davis, June Jordan, Maya Angelou, Shirley Graham Du Bois, Jean uh, Binta Breeze, so many different Black women and gender expansive organizers who've Whose, whose careers have been halted, right? Who've been kicked out of the academy because they believed, right, in not the collective punishment of Palestinian people, but for their liberation. So what I began to see was what was going on uh, since October 7th and, and the Israeli state and their collective punishment of Palestinian people was that there was a silence amongst Black feminists, Black feminist organizations who claim that they have a radical Black feminist abolitionist politic. And right now we cannot be silent. Our silence is complicity. Just like we asked folks to stand in solidarity with us when we were uh, having a movement for Black life during the uh, uh, summer of 2020 with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many, this is the Palestinian call to action for us to stand in solidarity, right? And so I created a reading list um, it's titled Solidarity with Palestine, a Black Feminist Mandate to offer free resources, books, podcasts, etc. quotes by Black feminists past and present who have been in solidarity so people can see that this is our mandate as well, that our liberation is tethered and bound to the freedom of Palestinians. This is not like individualistic, oh, we can only have Black folks' freedom here, et cetera. No. Angela Davis, we recently had a call, Black More Radicals had a call, um, an online event with, with Angela Davis, Dr. Beverly Guy Sheftall, Clarissa Brooks, Brianna Simone Jones, and um, uh, Bria Johnson on Black feminist writers in Palestine. And Dr. Davis said, well, we can chew gum and walk, right? And do that at the same time. Meaning, right, that we can we can be in solidarity with Black liberation, but we can also be in solidarity with what's going on in Palestine and Congo, Sudan, Eritrea, right? It, it's, it's, it's not just one-sided. And so that's what solidarity means to me. And even so we see also, sadly, for those who are in solidarity, they're getting job offers rescinded. They're, they're, they're getting fired from their jobs, right? Um, and I am so willing to do that because like, if that's a part of my radical Black feminist politic, right? I, like, I want to be on the right side of history, just like June Jordan, who spoke out and, and actually her career was halted as well. So if this means that I lose out on certain things, if this means that we lose out on certain things, I'd rather lose out because so many Palestine, Palestinian people are losing their lives. I want to pick up on the losing out on things because this this work that you all are doing is not without its risks. So, Beth, for you, um, the regional director of the Anti-Defamation League, the ADL, here in the United States, um, said in a statement after the actions of last week that, quote, these far-left radical organizations do not represent the overwhelming majority of the Jewish community, end quote. Now, I think blanket statement, it needs to be said, no group is a monolith. We know that. But what is your response to the ADL and to this viewpoint that you're, you're a fringe? This is not what Jewish people in the U.S. want. And then, and then just pivot off of that too, then what does this mean for your safety and your feeling of belongingness in that community? The ADL has spent decades pretending to be a civil rights organization. Uh, 
but in moments like this, they are showing their hand. Um, what we what we did on Wednesday was the epitome of a civil rights, human rights, civil disobedience um, action. It's people sitting down and refusing to move and demanding that bombs stop falling. That was what we were calling for. And there is an overwhelming, rapidly growing number of American Jews who are calling for this as well. Even those Jews who are in mourning for people that they lost on October 7th, they are still calling for a ceasefire right now um, and calling for us to not send more weapons to the Israeli government. The fact of the matter is we shouldn't spend too much. We shouldn't give too much airtime to the ADL. They are claiming to speak for the majority of Jews. Like you said, no group is a monolith. But the fact of the matter is that the more and more American Jews gain an understanding of what the Israeli military and Israeli government are doing, the more and more we are demanding a change and a shift in what the Israeli government does and in what our own government does in relation to the Israeli military and its actions. We do not want to be supporting human rights violations, mass atrocities, and war crimes. Also, it is important for there to be moral voices, even if they are in the minority, that doesn't make them wrong. (laughs) Even if we are not Currently, the like leaders of all American Jewish institutions, though I will emphasize again, the, the, it is a rapidly, rapidly growing number um, of American Jews that are speaking out on this issue and disagreeing with groups like the ADL. Since when does being in the minority mean that you are wrong? <laughs> that is often the way these things go, right? It's that you need people who are within their own community who are willing to speak the truth, even if it means that they might get hit back on by people who disagree with them. That's how change has to happen. Um, I think that, you know, you asked about what that means for, for us, for our own safety. Um, and I appreciate the question and it's an important question. And also I think that, you know, for folks in, in JVP, for sure, there is a sense that the overwhelming urgency of what is happening right now in Gaza trumps all of that. Um, I think that solidarity means that you fight for others the way you would fight for yourself um, and the way you would want others to fight for you, right? I think about um, if, if this were happening to my own community, how would I want the world to respond? And that is how I must now respond right now in this moment, right? That's what solidarity means and looks like. It can't be that um, because they're not Jewish, because they're not someone who, I, you know, that's, that's what solidarity looks like too. And Um, There's something that our executive director has been saying a lot, which is that the thing we have to learn from the Holocaust is that the world let it happen. And we cannot let this happen. Um, And so that's that's really the orientation we have and and have to all have Jewish or not uh, Palestinian or not. All of us need to have that that orientation to this moment. Iman, you had a heavy sigh there in recognition of what Beth was saying. I could see it on your face. You just took this deep breath. And when it comes to safety, of course, we know Islamophobia and anti-Semitism is on the rise here in the United States and in other places, um, as it often is when things like this come up in the news. Um, for Palestinian Americans and for activists, this work is not without that the risk. We know that doxing is nothing new. We saw just last week the severe backlash that Harvard students are facing mm-hmm. after pinning that letter blaming Israel for what's 
currently unfolding. Um, Black activists were amongst those at Harvard who are also now facing doxing. So, Iman, for you and for activists who advocate for fair treatment of Palestinians, um, has social media changed people's willingness to show their support for Palestine or their criticism of the Israeli government? I mean, so when you mentioned safety, the reason behind why I sighed, one of the first things that came up for me was actually the fact that for many of us Palestinians, we're not risking, it's not just doxing or blacklisting. Like, from the moment that I accepted this position with this organization I now work with as a Palestinian, I knew I was risking my ability to ever enter back home. And with family that lives, more than half of my family line lives back in the West Bank. Um, I knew that I was risking my ability to see them. Um, I apologize if this is slightly emotional, but I think that like that like the reality is here for many of us, we are literally risking our entire livelihood. Like when we talk about this, and I think for anybody who's directly impacted in a struggle, like we are all risking our direct livelihood and our like familial livelihood here as a matter of fact. And I think like that rips my heart apart every day I step into it. But just as Beth said, like what is happening here? Like we're will, like so many of us are willing to risk it all, everything. Like I'm I'm willing to risk it all. Like whether it's the doxing or the blacklisting or the, any sort of repressive tactics. Like this is what unfortunately this is what Zionists do, right? Like these are the folks who are staunchly behind the pro-Israeli position are doing because they understand. And I think just in any as in any movement, there have always been repressive tactics used to silence those who are trying to uh, shed light on the truth. Um, the truth is not easy to share because of the level of hostility that many of us have faced. And I think so much of our, like the Black liberation struggle in the United States, like from the times of like COINTELPRO and all the other surveillance programs that have been developed to now also harass and highlight like and, and, and center, like whether it's Black Muslim Americans or just the entirety of the Muslim community, like our Jewish brothers and sisters are now falling into this category as well, just for simply speaking truth. And I think that, again, for many of us who are already speaking and already trying to shed this light, um, have risked it, we're risking it all. And I think one thing that's actually been particularly like, it's been actually really difficult to gather, but the level of like hostility towards students and student organizations across different universities, like it is a hot spot for like the attacks, like students are getting doxxed and blacklisted. I mean, yes, we saw the Harvard list go out around like, don't hire these students because of their position. Like, who, why are we doing this? What, 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 what is it? What are we so afraid of? What, what is it that people are so afraid of? And I think that like my, my deep, deep appreciation for everyone who, despite knowing what the consequences of this all are, like what specifically they're putting on the line is just something that I just cannot, I can't even comprehend. And I think that, Jamie, you were talking about the sacrifices we make to the jobs we hold. I mean, many of us are fortunate to work in these solidarity organizations that respect our, you know, our full opinions, our full experiences. But for so many, that's not welcome. And I've had so many friends that are like, I can't even comprehend this in my place of work because it's not welcome. Um, and it's not that people are afraid to speak up. It's just a matter of like, we are, are just like, it, it, just, it shouldn't be this way, but it is. And I think that I really appreciate the people who are willing to sacrifice everything for themselves, but it just doesn't, this shouldn't have to be the norm. We shouldn't have to be super afraid to speak up and to do these things, especially when it comes to Palestine. I mean, we've always known that Palestine is some odd exception to any conversation around liberation. It's always been about like, 
we can talk about anything, but we can't talk about Palestine. And the moment you mentioned Palestine is the moment that you're flagged. And this, again, this happened long before these past two weeks. It's just now been heightened and everyone is hyper aware of what's been going on. Um, but I think it's just something for us to like reflect on and, and recognize it, it, that just, just this doesn't have to be the norm. Yeah. Um, Jamie, I'll give you the, the last question here. And, and when we talk about people who've risked it all, for what they believe the um, the history of fighting for civil rights and Black rights in the United States is filled with people like that. And when it comes to the solidarity struggle, we know in 1964, Malcolm X, one of those people who risked it all, visited Gaza. So solidarity between Black Americans and the Palestinian people goes way back. When you look at that history, what from their experiences brings you hope for today? What should we learn? What we should learn is that theory cannot be void of a praxis. I think about Asada Shakur here, where she has a quote that says, I just didn't want my head to be in the library and the books. I needed to be out in the streets as well. So when we cite El-Hajj, Malik al-Shabazz, Malcolm X, and we cite uh, and Tazaki Shange, when we cite Toni Morrison, I urge folks, particularly Black feminists, not to have a revisionist history of what they stood for. Oh, we can talk about self-care and Audre Lorde, but she was battling cancer and she was outspoken about her solidarity with Palestine. And so my hope is, is that how are we centering liberation struggles, right? Not only our own, but internationally, which our ancestors have always done. Right. And how do we really add that to not on only our theoretical canon, but our political praxis? And I think um, I was mentioned with Dr. Angela Davis yesterday. She said something so important, quoting June Jordan. She said, Palestine is a litmus test. What we are seeing is a litmus test to our morality. What we're seeing is a litmus test to the future of what we're talking. We're talking about human life here. So you're saying that Palestinian lives are not as important as Israeli lives? What are we saying? And Dr. Davis, it's something so powerful. She said, we can talk about social justice, but what you said, Iman, we can't talk about Palestine. That is not integrated in the social justice human rights framework. So you can pretend to be progressive all you want to, but when the question of Palestine comes in, it's... So what we're seeing is, it's like, I'm taking names, I'm screenshotting, I'm seeing who's been complicit, because we can never let this happen again, nor can we allow these people to come into our spaces again when they've been so silent about what's going on. And, and lastly, I'll say that for me, in terms of Black and Palestinian solidarities, I also want to center that there are Black and Afro-Palestinians as well. And to think about their livelihoods and histories, right, too, we talk about the Black liberation struggle, but overall, to really understand this history, it takes us being students. And I think that social media has sadly pacified and co-opted and watered down the radical and revolutionary Black feminist tradition, Right. When we should really know that these are our, our black feminist ancestors really stood on the line and sacrificed so many things. Right. To be in solidarity. And I want to be in that line and I want to be on the right mm -hmm. side of history. So mm -hmm. we got to do it. Beautifully said. I want to be on that line as well. And so let's end this with how we started it. Rapid fire around our virtual room, one or two sentences max, because we're running out of time. <laughs> but I want to know how you're feeling about the work going forward. What is bringing you hope and what should our listeners and our viewers take away to help push them on? Uh, Iman. 
I really am hopeful. I, I know that all of our people are super resilient and we won't stop until we get ourselves liberated. Um, so I, I'm, I'm deeply appreciative for all the movement leaders here and there's so many others who aren't here that are stepping in and sacrificing everything. Um, you know, we're, we're still demanding a ceasefire and until that happens, then we move into like the collective liberation, right? Like we need to understand that that's at the root of all of this and we won't stop until we have it. Jamie? I'm just grateful for Iman and Beth and the amazing work that they're doing. And I am hopeful that we will see a free Palestine. I want to see it in my lifetime. I want to see it. I want to see it in my lifetime. And I'm hopeful that I am um, all the folks on the ground, all the people who are raising noise. It's 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 great to know that we are not alone in our solidarity. And we're going to keep pushing and moving forward and pushing the needle until we see the ceasefire, but eventually a free and liberated Palestine. Mm. And Beth, take us out. I'm feeling hopeful as well. I feel uh, there's a um, overwhelming heaviness to this moment, but I've never seen I've never seen mobilization like this either. Um, and seeing so many organizers, activists, and just people who are showing up right now with everything they have. And um, that's what it takes to move this and to stop this. Um, and I feel like it can build then toward, like Iman said, right now we're demanding a ceasefire. And then we need to move toward addressing the root causes of violence, which is oppression. Um, and I feel like um, if we can all keep mobilizing in the way we have been, then we can get there. You heard it here first. Iman, Beth, Jamie, thank you so much for being in this conversation. Um, I am leaving it a little bit more hopeful than I began. Um, and that's thanks to you all. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Faranisa Campana and Sonia Bagat, with Chloe K. Lee, Miranda Lynn, Khaled Sultan, Zaina Bazar, David Enders, Amy Walters, Ashish Malhotra, Sariad Khalili, and me, Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back. <laughs>